Volume 2, The Master Key Chapter 4, Testing the Instruments There is little doubt that this strange experience befallen a grown man, he would have been stricken with a fit of trembling or a sense of apprehension, or even fear, at the thought of having faced the terrible demon of electricity, of having struck the master key of the world's greatest natural forces, and finding himself possessed of three such wonderful and useful gifts. But a boy takes everything as a matter of course. As the tree of knowledge sprouts and expands within him, shooting out leaf after leaf of practical experience, the succession of surprises dulls his faculty of wonderment. It takes a great deal to startle a boy. Rob was full of delight at his unexpected good fortune, but he did not stop to consider that there was anything remarkable, queer, or uncanny in the manner in which it had come to him. His chief sensation was one of pride. He would now be able to surprise those who had made fun of his electrical craze and force them to respect his marvelous powers. He decided to say nothing about the demon or the accidental striking of the master key. In exhibiting to his friends the electrical devices he had acquired, it would be no end of fun to mark their amazement and leave them to guess how he had performed his feats. So he put his treasures into his pocket, locked his workshop, and went downstairs to his room to prepare for dinner. While brushing his hair, he remembered it was no longer necessary for him to eat ordinary food. He was feeling quite hungry at the moment, for he had a boy's ravenous appetite. But, taking the silver box from his pocket, he swallowed a tablet and at once felt his hunger as fully satisfied as if he had partaken of a hearty meal. While at the same time he experienced an exhilarating glow throughout his body, and a clearness of brain and gaiety of spirits which filled him with intense gratification. Still, he entered the dining room when the bell rang, and found his father and mother and sisters already assembled there. "'Where have you been all day, Robert?' inquired his mother. "'No need to ask,' said Mr. Jocelyn with a laugh. "'Fussing over electricity, I'll bet a cookie.' "'I do wish,' said his mother fretfully, "'that he would get over that mania. It unfits him for anything else.' "'Precisely,' returned her husband, dishing the soup." But if it fits him for a great career when he becomes a man, why shouldn't he spend his summer vacation in pursuit of useful knowledge instead of romping around like ordinary boys? No, thank you, said Rob. What? exclaimed his father, looking at him in surprise. It's your favorite soup. I know, said Rob quietly. But I don't want any. Are you ill, Robert? asked his mother in concern. "'I've never felt better in my life,' answered Rob truthfully. Yet Mrs. Jocelyn looked worried, and when Robert refused the roast, she was really shocked. "'Let me feel your pulse, my poor boy,' she commanded, and wondered to find it so regular. In fact, Rob's action surprised them all. He sat calmly throughout the meal, eating nothing, but apparently in good health and spirits, while even his sisters regarded him with troubled countenances. "'He's worked too hard, I guess,' said Mr. Jocelyn, shaking his head sadly. "'Oh, no, I haven't,' protested Rob. 
but I've decided not to eat anything hereafter. It's a bad habit and does more harm than good. Just wait till breakfast, said his sister Helen with a laugh. You'll be hungry enough by then. However, the boy had no desire for food at breakfast time either, as the tablet sufficed for an entire day. So he renewed the anxiety of his family by refusing to join them at the table. If this goes on, Mr. Jocelyn said to his son when breakfast was finished, I shall be obliged to send you away for your health. I was thinking of taking a trip this morning, said Rob carelessly. Where to? Oh, I may go to Boston, or take a run over to Cuba, or maybe Jamaica, replied the boy. But you can't go so far by yourself, declared his father. There is no one to go with you just now, nor can I spare the money at present for so expensive a trip. Oh, it won't cost anything, replied Rob with a smile. Mr. Jocelyn looked upon him gravely and sighed. Mrs. Jocelyn bent over her son with tears in her eyes and said, This electrical nonsense has affected your mind, dear. You must promise me to keep away from that horrid workshop for a time. Oh, I won't enter it for a week, he answered. But you needn't worry about me. I haven't been experimenting with electricity all this time for nothing, I can tell you. As for my health, I'm as well and strong as any boy need be, and there's nothing wrong with my head either. Common folk always think great men are crazy, but Edison and Tesla and I don't pay any attention to that. We've got our discoveries to look after. Now, as I said, I'm going for a little trip in the interests of science. I may be back by tonight, or I may be gone several days. Anyway, I'll be back in a week, and you mustn't worry about me a single minute. How are you going? inquired his father in a gentle, soothing tone, one that persons use in addressing maniacs. Through the air, said Rob. His father groaned. Where's your balloon? inquired Sister Mabel sarcastically. I don't need a balloon, returned the boy. That's a clumsy way of traveling at best. I shall go by electric propulsion. Good gracious, cried Mr. Jocelyn, and the mother murmured, My poor boy, my poor boy. As you are my nearest relatives, continued Rob, not noticing these exclamations, I will allow you to come into the back yard and see me start. You will then understand something of my electrical powers. They followed him at once, although with unbelieving faces, and on the way Rob clasped the little machine to his left wrist, so that his coat sleeve nearly hid it. When they reached the lawn at the back of the house, Rob kissed them all goodbye, much to his sister's amusement, and turned the indicator of the little instrument to the word up. Immediately he began to rise into the air. Don't worry about me, he called down to them. Goodbye! Mrs. Jocelyn, with a scream of terror, hid her face in her hands. He'll break his neck, cried the astounded father, tipping back his head to look after his departing son. Come back! Come back! shouted the girls to the soaring adventurer. I will! Some day! was the faraway answer. Having risen high enough to pass over the tallest tree or steeple, Rob put the indicator to the east of the compass dial and at once began moving rapidly in that direction. The sensation was delightful. 
He rode as gently as a feather floats, without any exertion at all on his own part, and he moved so swiftly that he easily distanced a railway train that was speeding in the same direction. This is great, reflected the youth. Here I am, traveling in fine style, without a penny to pay anyone, and I have enough food to last me a month in my coat pocket. This electricity is the proper stuff after all, and the demon's a trump, and no mistake. Hoo-wee! How small everything looks down below there. The people are bugs, and the houses soapboxes, and trees are like clumps of grass. I seem to be passing over a town. Guess I'll drop down a bit and take in the sights. He pointed the indicator to the word down, and at once began dropping through the air. He experienced the sensation one feels while descending in an elevator. When he reached a point just above the town, he put the indicator to the zero mark and remained stationary while he examined the place. But there was nothing there to interest him particularly, so after a brief survey he once more ascended and continued his journey toward the east. At about two o'clock in the afternoon he reached the city of Boston, and alighting unobserved in a quiet street he walked around for several hours enjoying the sights and wondering what people would think of him if they but knew his remarkable powers. But as he looked just like any other boy, no one noticed him in any way. It was nearly evening, and Rob had wandered down by the wharves to look at the shipping, when his attention was called to an ugly-looking bulldog, which ran toward him and began barking ferociously. "'Get away!' said the boy, carelessly, and made a kick at the brute. The dog uttered a fierce growl and sprang upon him with bared teeth and flashing red eyes. Instantly, Rob drew the electric tube from his pocket, pointed it at the dog, and pressed the button. Almost at the same moment, the dog gave a yelp, rolled over twice, and lay still. "'I guess that'll settle him,' laughed the boy. But just then he heard an angry shout and, looking around, saw a policeman running toward him. "'You killed my dog, did you?' yelled the officer. "'Well, I'll just run you in for that.' "'and you'll spend the rest of the night in the lock-up.' "'And on he came, with drawn club in one hand "'and a big revolver in the other. "'You'll have to catch me first, said Rob, still laughing, "'and to the amazement of the policeman, "'he began rising straight into the air. "'Come down here! Come down here, or I'll shoot!' "'shouted the fellow, flourishing his revolver. "'Rob was afraid he would, so to avoid accidents "'he pointed the tube at the policeman and pressed the button.' The red-whiskered man keeled over quite gracefully and fell across the body of the dog, while Rob continued to mount upward until he was out of sight of those in the streets. That was a narrow escape, he thought, breathing more freely. I hated to paralyze that policeman, but he might have sent a bullet after me. Anyway, he'll be all right in an hour or so, so I needn't worry. It was beginning to grow dark, and he wondered what he should do next. Had he possessed any money, he would have descended to the town and taken a bed at a hotel. But he had left home without a single penny. Fortunately, the nights were warm at this season, so he determined to travel all night that he might reach by morning some place he had never before visited. Cuba had always interested him, and he judged it might lie in a southeasterly direction from Boston. 
So he set the indicator to that point and began gliding swiftly toward the southeast. He now remembered it was twenty-four hours since he had eaten the first electrical tablet. As he rode through the air, he consumed another. All hunger left him at once, while he felt the same invigorating sensations as before. After a time, the moon came out, and Rob amused himself, gazing at the countless stars in the sky, and wondering if the demon was right when he said the world was the most important of all the planets. But presently he grew sleepy, and before he realized what was happening, he had fallen into a sound, peaceful slumber, while the indicator still pointed to the southeast, and he continued to move rapidly through the cool night air. Chapter 5 The Cannibal Island Doubtless the adventures of the day had tired Rob, for he slept throughout the night as comfortably as if he had been within his own room, lying upon his own bed. When at last he opened his eyes and gazed sleepily about him, he found himself over a great body of water, moving along at a considerable speed. "'It's the ocean, of course!' he said to himself. "'I haven't reached Cuba yet.' It is to be regretted that Rob's knowledge of geography was so superficial, for as he had intended to reach Cuba, he should have taken a course almost southwest from Boston instead of southeast. The sad result of his ignorance you will presently learn, for during the entire day he continued to travel over a boundless waste of ocean, without the sight of even an island to cheer him. The sun shone so hot he regretted he had not brought an umbrella, but he wore a wide-brimmed straw hat which protected him somewhat, and he finally discovered that by rising to a considerable distance above the ocean he avoided the reflection of the sun upon the water, and also came with the current of good breeze. Of course he dared not stop, for there was no place to land, so he calmly continued his journey. "'It may be that I've missed Cuba,' he thought, "'but I cannot change my course now, for if I did I might get lost, and never be able to find land again. If I keep on as I am I shall be sure to reach land of some sort in time, and when I wish to return home I can set the indicator to the northwest, and that will take me directly back to Boston.' This was good reasoning, but the rash youth had no idea he was speeding over the ocean, or that he was destined to arrive shortly at the barbarous island of Brava, off the coast of Africa. Yet such was the case. Just as the sun sank over the edge of the waves, he saw to his great relief a large island directly in his path. He dropped to a lower position in the air, and when he judged himself to be over the center of the island, he turned the indicator to zero and stopped short. The country was beautifully wooded, while pretty brooks sparkled through the rich green foliage of the trees. The island sloped upward from the sea coast in all directions, rising to a hill that was almost a mountain in the center. There were two open spaces, one on each side of the island, and Rob saw that these spaces were occupied by queer-looking huts built from brushwood and branches of trees. This showed that the island was inhabited, 
But as Rob had no idea what island it was, he wisely determined not to meet the natives until he had discovered what they were like and whether they were disposed to be friendly. So we moved over the hill, the top of which proved to be a flat, grass-covered plateau about fifty feet in diameter. Finding it could not be easily reached from below, on account of its steep sides, and contained neither men nor animals, he alighted on the hilltop and touched his feet to the earth for the first time in twenty-four hours. The ride through the air had not tired him in the least. In fact, he felt as fresh and vigorous as if he had been resting throughout the journey. As he walked upon the soft grass of the plateau, he felt elated, and compared himself to the explorers of ancient days, for it was evident that civilization had not yet reached this delightful spot. There was scarcely any twilight in this tropical climate, and it grew dark quickly. Within a few minutes the entire island, save where he stood, became dim and indistinct. He ate his daily tablet, and after watching the red glow fade in the western sky and the gray shadows of night settle around him, he stretched himself comfortably upon the grass and went to sleep. The events of the day must have deepened his slumber, for when he awoke the sun was shining almost directly over him, showing him that the day was well advanced. He stood up, rubbed the sleep from his eyes, and decided he would like a drink of water. From where he stood he could see several little brooks following winding paths through the forest, so he settled upon one that seemed farthest from the brushwood villages and turned his indicator in that direction, and soon floated through the air to a sheltered spot upon the bank. Kneeling down, he enjoyed a long, refreshing drink of the clear water, but as he started to regain his feet, a coil of rope was suddenly thrown about him, pinning his arms to his sides and rendering him absolutely helpless. At the same time, his ears were saluted with a wild chattering in an unknown tongue. He found himself surrounded by a group of natives of hideous appearance. They were nearly naked and bore spears and heavy clubs as their only weapons. Their hair was long, curly, and thick as bushes, and through their noses and ears were stuck the teeth of sharks and curious metal ornaments. These creatures had stolen upon Rob so quietly he had not heard a sound, but now they jabbered loudly as if much excited. Finally, one fat and somewhat aged native, who seemed to be the chief, came close to Rob and said in broken English, "'How get here?' "'I flew,' said the boy with a grin. The chief shook his head, saying, "'No boat come! How white man come?' "'Through the air,' replied Rob, who was rather flattered at being called a man. The chief looked into the air with a puzzled expression and shook his head again. "'White man lie,' he said calmly. Then he held further conversation with his fellows, after which he turned to Rob and announced, "'Me see white man many times, come in big boats. White man all bad. Make kill with bang sticks. We kill white man with club. Then we eat white man. Dead white man good. Live white man bad.'" This did not please Rob at all. The idea of being eaten by savages had never occurred to him, as a sequel to his adventure. So he said rather anxiously to the chief, 
Look here. Do you want to die? Me no die, you die, was the reply. You'll die too if you eat me, said Rob. I'm full of poison. Poison? Don't know poison, returned the chief, much perplexed to understand him. Well, poison will make you sick, awful sick, and then you'll die. I'm just full of it. Eat it every day for breakfast. It don't hurt white men, you see, but it kills other men quicker than the bang stick. The chief listened to this statement carefully, but only understood it in part. After a moment's reflection, he declared, White man lie, lie all time. Me eat plenty white man, never get sick, never die. Then he added with renewed cheerfulness, Me eat you too. Before Rob could think of a further protest, his captors caught up the end of the rope and led him away through the forest. He was tightly bound, and one strand of rope ran across the machine on his wrist and pressed it into his flesh until the pain was severe. But he resolved to be brave, whatever happened, so he stumbled along after the savages without a word. After a brief journey, they came to a village where Rob was thrust into a brushwood hut and thrown to the ground, still tightly bound. We light fire, said the chief. Then kill little white man, then eat him. With this comforting promise, he went away and left Rob alone to think the matter over. This is tough, reflected the boy with a groan. I never expected to feed cannibals. Wish I was at home with mother and dad and the girls. Wish I'd never seen the demon of electricity and his wonderful inventions. I was happy enough before I struck that awful master key, and now I'll be eaten. With salt and pepper, probably. Wonder if they'll use any gravy. Perhaps they'll boil me with biscuits, as mother does with chicken. Oh, that would be just awful. In the midst of these depressing thoughts, he became aware that something was hurting his back. After rolling over, he found he had been lying upon a sharp stone that stuck out of the earth. This gave him an idea. He rolled upon the stone again and began rubbing the rope that bound him against the sharp edge. Outside, he could hear the crackling of the burning sticks and the roar of the newly kindled fire. So he knew he had no time to spare. He wriggled and pushed his body right and left and right and left, sawing away at the rope until the strain and exertion started the perspiration from every pore. At length the rope parted, and hastily uncoiling it from his body, Rob stood up and rubbed his numbed muscles and tried to regain his lost breath. He had not freed himself a moment too soon, he found, for hearing a grunt of surprise behind him, he turned and saw a native standing in the door of the hut. Rob laughed, for he was not a bit afraid of these natives now. As the native made a rush toward him, the boy drew the electric tube from his pocket, aimed it at the foe, and pressed the button. The fellow sank to the earth without even a groan and lay still. Then another man entered, followed by the fat chief. When they saw Rob at liberty and their comrade lying apparently dead, the chief cried out in surprise, using some expressive words in his own language. "'If it's all the same to you,' said Rob coolly, "'I will not be eaten today. 
you can make a pie that fellow on the ground. No, we eat you, cried the chief angrily. You cut rope, but no get away. No boat. I don't need a boat, thank you, said the boy. And then as the other native sprang forward, he pointed the tube and laid him out beside the first victim. At this act, the chief stood an instant in amazed uncertainty. Then he turned and rushed from the hut. Laughing with amusement at the waddling fat figure, Rob followed the chief and found himself standing almost in the center of the native village. A big fire was blazing merrily, and the men were busy making preparations for a grand feast. Rob was quickly surrounded by a crowd of villagers who chattered fiercely and made threatening motions in his direction. But as the chief cried out to them a warning in the native tongue, they kept a respectful distance and contented themselves with brandishing their spears and clubs. If any of your fellows come any nearer, Rob said to the fat chief, I'll knock him over. What you make do? asked the chief nervously. Watch sharp and you'll see, answered Rob. Then he made a mocking bow to the circle and continued. I'm pleased to have met you fellows, and proud to think you like me well enough to eat me. "'but I'm in a bit of a hurry today, so I can't stop to be digested.' "'After which the crowd broke into a hum of surprise. "'He added, "'Good day, folks,' "'and quickly turned the indicator of his traveling machine to the word up. "'Slowly he rose into the air until his heels were just above the gaping men, "'but there he stopped short. "'With a thrill of fear he glanced at his indicator.' It was pointed properly, and he knew at once that something was wrong with the delicate mechanism that controlled it. Probably the pressure of the rope across its face when he was bound had put it out of order. And there he was, seven feet in the air, but without the power to rise an inch farther. This short flight, however, had greatly astonished the natives, who, seeing his body suspended in mid-air, immediately hailed him as a god and prostrated themselves upon the ground before him. The fat chief had seen something of white men in his youth, and had learned to mistrust them, so while he remained as prostrate as the rest, he peeped at Rob with one of his little black eyes, and saw that the boy was ill at ease, and seemed both annoyed and frightened. So he muttered some orders to the man next to him, who wriggled along the ground until he reached a position behind Rob, when he rose and pricked the suspended god with the point of a spear. Ow! yelled the boy. Stop that! He twisted his head around, and seeing the African again make a movement with his spear, Rob turned his electric tube upon him, and keeled him over like a ten-pin. The natives who had looked up at his cry of pain again prostrated themselves, kicking their toes against the ground in a terrified tattoo at this new evidence of the god's powers. The situation was growing somewhat strained at this time, and Rob did not know what the savages would decide to do next, so he thought it best to move away from them since he was unable to rise to a greater height. He turned the indicator toward the south, where a level space appeared between the trees, but instead of taking that direction, he moved toward the northeast, a proof that his machine had now become absolutely unreliable. Moreover, he was slowly approaching the fire, which, although it had ceased blazing, was a mass of glowing red embers. 
In his excitement, he turned the indicator this way and that, trying to change the direction of his flight. But the only result of his endeavor was to carry him directly over the fire, where he came to a full stop. "'Murder! Help! Fire and blazes!' he cried as he felt the glow of the coals beneath him. "'I'll be roasted, after all! Here, help! Fatty, help me!' The fat chief sprang to his feet and came to the rescue. He reached up, caught Rob by the heels, and pulled him down to the ground away from the fire. But the next moment, as he clung to the boy's feet, they both soared into the air again, and although now far enough from the fire to escape its heat, the savage, finding himself lifted from the ground, uttered a scream of horror and let go of Rob to fall head over heels upon the ground. The other Africans had by this time regained their feet, and now they crowded around their chief and set him upright again. Rob continued to float in the air just above their heads, and now abandoned all thoughts of escaping by means of his wrecked traveling machine. But he resolved to regain a foothold upon the earth and take his chances of escape by running rather than flying. So he turned the indicator to the word down, and very slowly it obeyed, allowing him to his great relief to sink gently to the ground. Chapter 6 the Buccaneers. Once more, the natives formed a circle around our adventurer, who coolly drew his tube and said to the chief, Tell your people I'm going to walk away through those trees, and if anybody dares interfere with me, I'll paralyze them. The chief understood enough English to catch his meaning and repeated the message to his men. Having seen the terrible effect of the electric tube, they wisely fell back and allowed the boy to pass. He marched through their lines with a fine air of dignity, although he was fearful that some of the natives should stick a spear into him or bump his head with a war club. But they were awed by the wonders they had seen and were still inclined to believe him a god. So he was not molested. When he found himself outside the village, he made for the high plateau in the center of the island, where he could be safe from the cannibals while he collected his thoughts. But when he reached the place, he found the sides so steep he could not climb them, so he adjusted the indicator to the word up and found it still had enough power to support his body while he clambered up the rocks to the level, grass-covered space at the top. Then, reclining upon his back, he gave himself up to thoughts of how he might escape from this unpleasant predicament. Here I am, on a cannibal island, hundreds of miles from civilization. "'With no way to get back,' he reflected. "'The family will look for me every day, "'and finally decided I've broken my neck. "'The demon will call upon me when the week is up "'and won't find me at home, "'so I'll miss my next three gifts. "'I don't mind that so much, "'for they might bring me into worse scrapes than this, "'but how am I to get away from this beastly island? "'I'll be eaten after all if I don't look out.' These and similar thoughts occupied him for some time. Yet, in spite of much planning and thinking, he could find no practical means of escape. At the end of an hour, he looked over the edge of the plateau and found it surrounded by a ring of cannibals who had calmly seated themselves to watch his movements. Perhaps they intend to starve me into surrender, he thought. But they won't succeed so long as my tablets hold out. And if in time... 
They should starve me. I'll be too thin and tough to make good eating, so I'll get the best of them anyway. Then he again lay down and began to examine his electrical traveling machine. He did not dare take it apart, fearing he might not be able to get it back together again, for he knew nothing at all about its construction. But he discovered two little dents on the edge, one on each side, which had evidently been caused by the pressure of the rope. Well, if I could get those dents out, the machine might work. He first tried to pry out the edges with his pocket knife, but the attempt resulted in failure. And then, as the sides seemed to bulge outward by the dents, he placed the machine between two flat stones and pressed them together until the little instrument was nearly round again. The dents remained, to be sure, but he hoped he had removed the pressure upon the works. There was just one way to discover how well he had succeeded, so he fastened the machine on his wrist and turned the indicator to the word up. Slowly he ascended, this time to a height of nearly twenty feet. Then his progress became slower and finally ceased altogether. Well, that's a little better. Let's see if it'll go sideways. He put the indicator to northwest, the direction of home, and very slowly the machine obeyed, carrying him away from the plateau and across the island. The natives saw him go and, springing to their feet, began uttering excited shouts and throwing spears at him. But he was already so high and so far away that they failed to reach him, and the boy continued his journey unharmed. Once the branches of a tall tree caught him and nearly tripped him over, but he managed to escape others by drawing up his feet. At last he was free of the island and traveling over the ocean again. He was not at all sorry to bid good-bye to the cannibal island. But he was worried about the machine, which clearly was not in good working order. The vast ocean was beneath him, and he moved no faster than an ordinary walk. At this rate, I'll get home sometime next year, he grumbled. However, I suppose I ought to be glad the machine is working at all. And he really was glad. All afternoon and all the long summer night, he moved slowly over the water. It was annoying to go at a regular jog-trot, as Rob called it, after his former swift flight, but there was no help for it. Just as dawn was breaking, he saw in the distance a small vessel sailing the direction he was following, yet scarcely moving for lack of wind. He soon caught up with it and saw no one on deck, and the craft had a dinghy and an uncared-for appearance that was not reassuring. But after hovering over it for some time, Rob decided to board the ship and rest for a while. He alighted near the bow, where the deck was highest, and was about to explore the place when a man came out of the low cabin and spied him. This person had a most villainous countenance, and was dark-skinned and black-bearded and dressed in an outlandish piratical costume. On seeing the boy, he gave a loud shout and was immediately joined by four companions, each as disagreeable in appearance as the first. Rob knew there would be trouble the moment he looked at this evil crew, and when they drew their daggers and pistols and began fiercely shouting in an unknown tongue, the boy sighed and took the electric tube from his pocket. The buccaneers did not notice the movement, but rushed upon him so quickly that he had to press the button at a lively rate. The tube made no noise at all, so it was a strange, remarkable sight to see the pirates suddenly drop to the deck and lie motionless.
Indeed, one was so nearly upon him when the electric current struck him that his head, in falling, bumped into Rob's stomach and sent him reeling against the side of the vessel. He quickly recovered himself, and seeing his enemies were rendered harmless, the boy entered the cabin and examined it curiously. It was dirty and ill-smelling enough, but the corners and the spare berths were heaped with merchandise of all kinds, which had been taken from those unlucky enough to have met these cruel and desperate men. After a short inspection of the place, he returned to the deck and again seated himself in the bow. The crippled condition of his traveling machine was now his chief trouble, and although a good breeze had sprung up to fill the sails, and the little bark was making fair headway, Rob knew he could never expect to reach home unless he could discover a better mode of conveyance than this. He unstrapped the machine from his wrist to examine it better, and while holding it carelessly in his hand, it slipped and fell with a bang to the deck striking upon its round edge and rolling quickly past the cabin and out of sight. With a cry of alarm, he ran after it, and after much searching, found it lying against the bulwark near the edge of the scupper hole, where the least jar of the ship would have sent it to the bottom of the ocean. Rob hastily seized his treasure, and upon examining it, found that its fall had bulged the rim so that the old dents scarcely showed at all but its original shape was more distorted than ever. And Rob feared he had utterly ruined its delicate mechanism. Should this prove to be true, he might now consider himself a prisoner of this piratical band, the members of which, although temporarily disabled, would soon regain consciousness. He sat in the bow, sadly thinking of his misfortunes, until he noticed that one of the men began to stir. The effect of the electric shock conveyed by the tube was beginning to wear away, and now the buccaneer sat up, rubbed his head in a bewildered fashion, and looked around. When he saw Rob, he gave a shout of rage and drew his knife, but one motion of the electric tube made him cringe and slip away to the cabin, where he remained out of danger. And now the other four sat up, groaning and muttering in their outlandish speech, but as they had no notion of facing Rob's tube a second time, one by one they joined their leader in the cabin, leaving the boy undisturbed. By the time the ship had begun to pitch and toss in an uncomfortable fashion, Rob noticed that the breeze had increased to a gale, there being no one to look after the sails. The vessel was in grave danger now of capsizing or breaking her masts. The waves were now running high too, and Rob began to worry. Presently, the captain of the pirates stuck his head out the cabin door and jabbered some unintelligible words and pointed to the sails. The boy nodded, for he understood they wanted to attend to the rigging. So the crew trooped forth rather fearfully and began to reef the sails and put the ship into condition to weather the storm. Rob paid no further attention to them. He looked at his traveling machine rather doubtfully and wondered if he dare risk its power to carry him through the air. Whether he remained in the ship or trusted the machine, he stood a good chance of dropping into the sea at any moment. So while he hesitated, he attached the machine to his wrist, leaned over the bulkworks to watch the progress of the storm. He might stay in the ship until it foundered, he thought, and then take his chances with the machine. He decided to wait until the climax arrived. The climax came at the next moment, for while he leaned over the bulwarks, the buccaneers stole up behind him and suddenly seized him in their grasp. While two of them held his arms, the others searched his pockets, 
taking from him the electric tube and the silver box containing his tablets. These they carried to the cabin and threw upon the heap of the other valuables they had stolen. They didn't notice his traveling machine, however, but seeing him now unarmed, they began jeering and laughing at him, while the brutal captain relieved his anger by giving the prisoner several malicious kicks. Rob bore his misfortune meekly, although he was almost ready to cry with grief and disappointment. But when one of the pirates, to inflict further punishment on the boy, came toward him with a heavy strap, he resolved not to wait for the blow. Turning the indicator to the word up, he found to his joy and relief that it would yet obey the influence of the power of repulsion. Seeing him rise into the air, the fellow made a grab for his foot and held it firmly, while his companions ran to help him. Weight seemed to make no difference to the machine, and it lifted the pirate as well as Rob, and then it lifted another who clung to the first man's leg, and then yet another who clung to him. The other two also caught hold, hoping their united strength would pull him down. And the next minute, Rob was soaring through the air with the entire string of five buccaneers dangling from his left leg. At first, the villains were too astounded to speak, but as they realized they were being carried away through the air and from their ship, they broke into loud shouts of dismay. Finally, the one who grasped Rob's leg lost his hold, and the five plunged downward and splashed into the sea. Finding the machine disposed to work accurately, Rob left the buccaneers to swim to the ship in the best way they could while he dropped back down to the deck again and recovered from the cabin his box of tablets and electric tube. The fellows were just scrambling on board when he again escaped, shooting into the air with considerable speed. Indeed, the instrument now worked better than at any time since he had reached the cannibal island, and the boy was greatly delighted. The wind at first sent him spinning away to the south, but he continued to rise until he was above the air currents, and the storm raged far below him. Then he set the indicator to the northwest and breathlessly waited to see if it would obey. Hooray! Away he sped at a fair rate of speed, while all his anxiety changed to a feeling of sweet contentment. His success had greatly surprised him, but he concluded that the jar caused by a drop in the mechanism had relieved the pressure upon the workings and so helped rather than harmed the free action of the electric currents. While he moved through the air with an easy gliding motion, he watched with much interest the storm raging below. Above his head the sun was peacefully shining, and the contrast was strange and impressive. After an hour or so the storm abated, or else he passed away from it, for the deep blue of the ocean again greeted his eyes. He dropped downward until he was about a hundred feet above the water when he continued his northwesterly course. But now he regretted having interfered for a moment with the action of the machine, for his progress, instead of being swift as a burr's, became slow and jerky, nor was he sure that the damaged machine might not break down altogether at any moment. So far his progress was in the right direction, he resolved to experiment no further with the instrument, but to let it go as it would, so long as it supported him above the water. However irregular the motion might be, it was sure, if continued, to bring him to land in time, and that was all he cared about just then. When night fell, his slumber was broken and uneasy, for he wakened more than once with a start of fear 
that the machine had broken and he was falling into the sea. Sometimes he was carried along at a swift pace, and later, again, the machine scarcely worked at all, so his anxiety was excusable. The following day was one of continued uneasiness, for the boy began to be harassed by doubts as to whether, after all, he was moving in the right direction. The machine had failed one time in this respect, and it might again. He had lost all confidence in its accuracy. In spite of these perplexities, Rob passed the second night of his uneven flight in profound slumber, being exhausted by the strain and excitement he had undergone. When he awoke at daybreak, he saw to his profound delight that he was approaching land. The rising sun found him passing over a big city, which he knew to be Boston. He did not stop. The machine was so little to be depended upon that he dared make no halt. But he was obliged to alter the direction from northwest to west, and the result of this slight change was so great a reduction in speed that it was midday before he saw beneath him the familiar village in which he lived. Carefully marking the direction of his father's house, he came to a stop directly over it, and a few moments later he managed to land upon the exact spot in the backyard whence he had taken his first successful flight.